Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Hello folks, it's me again, B, Rachel's right-hand gal and producer of Native Choctaw podcast. So if you missed part one of these two episodes, feel free to back up to the episode just before this one, which is part one of Rachel Youngman, the Choctaw girl from Hog Creek. So Rachel, welcome back. I hope you've refueled with a fresh new Dr. Pepper because this is going to be a heavy episode. I hope both of us can make it through. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, well, thank you. You aren't kidding. I, I don't actually get teary-eyed very often, but when it comes to my my family, I'm just a big old baby. So so we may need some waterproof mascara to go with that Dr. Pepper. <laughs> or like jumbo size Kleenex boxes that you get <laughs> on a pallet from Costco or something. <laughs> exactly. And just don't judge me if I blow my nose really loud into this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Plus I've been sick, so you know. <laughs> I hear you. We'll get through this together. So part two is titled 1896, A Year to Forget. So can you explain that? That's, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's like the 1800s version of 2020. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, the year of COVID. I know. Can uh, we just forget it? Yes. I'm all for that. But seriously, for my ancestors, 1896 was a really bad year. And there was all of this crazy stuff going on in history too at that time. So I realized recently it was a leap year too. I mean, I'm hmm. not superstitious person, but you know, maybe that had something to do with it after all. I mean, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that you've spent years researching your family's history. So what really spurred the desire to do so? Well, honestly, it, it all goes back to my sister, Skylar. She's the middle one of us three sisters. And when she was in college, she did a research paper on my great-grandmother, Ella, and her ancestors. So she interviewed my great-grandmother, who I'll call Ella from here on out, and also did some research in the records in Oklahoma City. So this was just long enough ago that most records weren't 
online and you had to physically dig and know where to go and who to ask. And um, anyway, so when she finished that paper, she gave us family members copies of our own. And I have to admit, I just, you know, skimmed through it and I put it in a filing cabinet. It's not because I wasn't interested because I've always been big into history and, and into, you know, going to museums and antique stores and all that, but I was just so super busy. Um, so anyway, years later in 2001, Ella at age 98 years old passed away. And she really was like the perfect, sweet, great grandmother. You just, you know, she just wanted to spend time with us and she supported us no matter what we all looked up to her and she was just gone. Hmm. So nine years after that, I was cleaning out that filing cabinet and I found that research paper from my sister and I turned the cover over and saw that first page, which had a photo of Ella on it. And you know, my heart just sank. (laughs) I missed her so much. I still do. You know, I think about her so much and I read the paper about her life and it really opened up an entire world. I couldn't sleep. I just, I kept thinking about what I read and I was wanting to hit myself for not asking her, you know, more questions and letting her know I was sorry for what she had gone through. I mean, I never got to say that to her, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. and maybe she didn't want her history told. I don't know, but I mean, I knew some of her past, but I didn't know all those things she had told my sister for that paper. And I definitely didn't know I was about to learn a whole lot more and meet a whole new slew of people. Mm -hmm. But so this, you know, sweet, little bitty Choctaw great grandmother of mine that I grew up around that I used to dress up in her clothes and my sisters and cousins and I would do fashion shows for her in her clothes, (laughs) you know, they were like 10 times too big, but yeah. (laughs) And, you know, we used to eat from her table and I remember her house having a certain smell. It was a Choctaw house that had been built by the tribe and, and, you know, she used to play with my hair and she crocheted these beautiful things. I still have some of them today, which is awesome. And, and, you know, she's always asking me how I liked college and, and she thought my daughter was so cute and this little sweet grandma, she went through a whole lot of hell and I had no idea and to this day, you know, I, I dream about her and her son, which is my grandpa, Papa Shoff, um, mm-hmm. quite a bit. And I could swear they come and visit me in those dreams every single time I'm, I'm happy and sad crying. It's like the same thing over and over. I'm probably ugly crying, honestly, but because <laughs> <laughs> I wake up going, oh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, my poor husband. Um, but anyway, in the dreams, I'm always apologizing to them over and over that I didn't spend more time with them or listen to them more. Um, it's really honestly, one of the biggest regrets in my life. Yeah. I, you know, I think that everybody has those kinds of regrets. I mean, I know I feel the same way about my grandparents that, you know, they passed away in the eighties and, you know, I'm like, wow, I could have talked to them about the great depression. And, you know, my, my grandpa came over from Croatia in the Mm. early twenties. And, you know, there's so much, of that history that gets lost. So, you know, I think, I think all of us, if we could go back, then, then we would. And, and I know that you always talk about doing this podcast to honor Ella and all the other natives who came before us. So let's talk about your ancestor stories. So where do you want to start? Uh, Yeah. But first off, I want to say kudos and honors to your family as well. Your grandparents that have passed and I'm sure you miss them. Thanks for sharing that little bit about them, but um, (laughs) Well, yeah, so let's go all the way back to the 1830s in the lower eastern part of the state of Mississippi, where most Choctaw resided at the time. 
and I know very little about my ancestors who lived there during that time, but we do know what was going on in history during that time, which mm-hmm. I think spells out a lot. So the Choctaw are known for having a great sense of business from long ago to today, honestly. And in Mississippi, they owned a lot of land and their economy in the 1700s was strong by selling and trading livestock and goods to the other tribes and to the Europeans. Then over time, as settlers were continuously being pushed to cede their lands to the settlers, in 1801, the Choctaw ceded over 2 million acres to the government in the Treaty of Fort Adams. And then that, you know, I know it's like... 2 million acres. That's insane. This is on an acre of land, you know, and I I can't imagine 2 million acres. It's crazy. But, um, so that really got the ball rolling on losing more and more land over time. It's, it's like the, you know, those, when you negotiate in a deal, you just don't give stuff away without asking something in return. And even then you don't give away 2 million acres, but they didn't have a choice. They really didn't. Mm -hmm. So over the years, a devastating 23 million Choctaw acres were given to the United States by 1830. And then that was marked by a final round of land uh, ceded uh, by the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, which also meant removal to Indian territory, now Oklahoma. And the Choctaws were the first of the Native Americans to be removed from their lands. But anyway, Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, I didn't mean to go over that too quickly. That is a very important treaty that really was the beginning of the end for Mississippi Choctaws is their life as the way they knew it. But, but anyway, so yeah, so Choctaws were the very first to, you know, having to head over, pack what little they could and get rid of the rest. Wow. You know, I really didn't know all that much about the Choctaw until I started working on the podcast with you. And so Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is just incredible that they were the first to be removed to Indian territory. And, you know, I always thought probably like a lot of people that, you know, it's like the Cherokee or, you know, (laughs) I didn't really know anything about the Trail of Tears and who was involved. Yeah. And you're definitely not alone in that. A lot of people think that because the Cherokees are such a popular tribe that people seem to have gravitated towards as far as what little or a lot that they know. A lot of times they think that the Cherokee were the first for a lot of things. In fact, the Choctaw were also the very first code talkers. And most people think it was the Navajo, you know? Yeah. I had thought that as well, but I really like the, you know, this is what you're out to do to help everybody to learn about this and, and understand the truths. Oh, for sure. But you know, I'm definitely learning a lot too, as I interview each guest. I mean, there's another thing that makes this so rewarding and we're all sort of learning together. And I walk away from every podcast going, Oh, well, son of a gun. I did not know that. (laughs) I do too. When I listen to it and I'm editing, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is so interesting. And then I have to talk about it to my husband or whoever else. I'm like, did you know, you know, You're going to like be able to wow all your friends with all this knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So the Choctaw were removed to Indian territory and yeah. So um, it's interesting to note that the Choctaw fought with America in the war of 1812 and they fought under Andrew Jackson in the Creek war in 1813 and 14. And then that same Andrew Jackson who promised friendship to the Choctaw and the Cherokees and who only 17 years later he ordered their removal from their homelands. I just, uh, that still just baffles me. I, uh, yeah, that is like, did them dirty. That is betrayal. Dirty. Yeah. Such betrayal. And it really, I think it was all these little things that would happen along the way, little and big things 
was a message to our American Indians that you're not worth anything. You really aren't. We're going to make these treaties to get what we want. And then we're going to break them and break them and break them. And so anyway, it's, it's heartbreaking, but they'd give a lot hoping to hang on to something, some little piece of land or a piece of power. And then that was even stolen too. So they were powerless. They lost everything. And I think it's easy to picture tribes at that time, all living primitively in teepees or, you know, for us, it was we didn't live in teepees. We lived in these straw homes and, or whatever the case and being told, Hey, you have to get up and take your family and very little of your things and leave and go to this new land. And by the way, traditional Mississippi Choctaw lived in homes called chukka made of river cane and clay. And that was mixed with straw and grass with, with um, thatched roofs. But many Choctaw of the time were actually living in homes like log cabins and cottage homes. And one day it just dawned on me that, wait, what time in history was this? How were the Choctaw living? And so I really did a lot of research into it. And, Mm -hmm. and so go with me, if you will, on this journey. So wipe your slate clean (laughs) and reimagine it. If you will, you're living in your home today, like your actual home you're in right now. It's today it's modern day. You've lived in your hometown, your whole lives, and you and your relatives have known the people in your community for many years. I mean, centuries, in fact, but over the years, people from another continent came over your grandparents and great grandparents talked about life before, let's say the Europeans came over into our space and, and how over time, like their intrusion was little by little squeeze these communities around you and your own community into a smaller and smaller space. So there've been conflicts, but also there's been a lot of cooperation trading amongst each other and learning to live in this changing community together. But nevertheless, you're starting to feel very afraid of what your future might look mm-hmm. like, what your kid's future might look like, you know, maybe you have little babies and you have no idea if they're going to be okay. And In addition, these settlers speak another language and are very different from the way you've grown up and your community. But over time, you've been learning the other's language and culture as much as you can. And then fear, again, has really started to take over. There are rumblings of the government allowing the outsiders to take more and more of your community's land. Your leader has a lot on his shoulders. He's been going to D.C. to meet with the invading leaders, but comes back with devastating news every time there's concern um, that if your community doesn't give up land, your people will be killed or at very least you, you know, become homeless. So finally your leader comes back one day to tell your community right there in California, where you are right now, that you have three years to move. I mean, can you imagine the feeling? It's just like, yeah. it's so weird when I put it that way and go, wow, mm-hmm. what happened to us today right now? But I've tried to not use words like chief or tribe in that story so that you can try to imagine that in present day. But like I said, many Choctaws were even living in homes made of wood or logs like everyone else was and trading and buying and selling with their communities. And so here you are, imagine trying to pack up as little as possible of your world and leave the land where your family and people in your community have lived for centuries. And I feel for the chiefs who they had to make these decisions during this time. It, w- it would be terrible. I mean, it's like, okay, do we want our people to live, but go live in a life that's not very good or do we yeah. want them to just well that's awful and you have to remember you know they didn't have target and home depot and all right. those things back then so they were just they were like moving off to the wilderness yeah with sacks or 
cloth completely isolated and, up and uh, oh you know. yeah yeah exactly so scary it's like they couldn't just stop at arby's and go through the drive-through for food at least we'd have that if that happened today but yeah they, they right nothing it's like they're in the wilderness are there any rabbits i mean considering if you think of, that is such a good point b because like let's say the amount of Choctaws, for instance, that were walking, most of them on foot, some of them had taken boats and then had to walk on foot. It's just a mess. And be, and part of the reason I said earlier about, I wanted to point out that they were the first was a lot of times in cases like this, it's not the, like the government was had the natives best interest at heart. They put a really crappy plan together and it got delayed. And then they had to leave when it was really cold to go come migrate over to Indian territory, now Oklahoma. And it did not go well. So those first Choctaws that went through any of this on behalf of all natives everywhere, it was a really terrible experience. And so they, the government tried to learn from that. They kind of improved some things over time, but every single person that came over did not have a great experience. Let's just say. Yeah, I can only imagine So there's this guy, George W. Harkins. He was a Choctaw attorney and was the chief of the Choctaw at the time. Listen to this heartbreaking letter he wrote to the American people once he knew the removals were going to happen. We go forth sorrowful, knowing that wrong has been done. Will you extend to us your sympathizing regards until all traces of disagreeable oppositions are obliterated? And we again shall have confidence in the professions of our white brethren. Here is the land of our progenitors and here are their bones. They left them as a sacred deposit and we have been compelled to venerate its trust. It's dear to us, yet we cannot stay. My people is dear to me. With them, I must go. Could I stay and forget them and leave them to struggle alone, unaided, unfriended, and forgotten by our great father? I should then be unworthy the name of a Choctaw and be disgraced to my blood. I must go with them. My destiny is cast among the Choctaw people. If they suffer, so will I. If they prosper, then will I rejoice. Let me again ask you to regard us with feelings of kindness. George W. Harkins. And it's just so sad to me. It's like, oh, we've lost. Yeah. (laughs) We had to give up. So in the month of October, the Choctaws were told to sell their homes and belongings and leave their livestock behind being told they'd receive new livestock in Indian territory, which in many cases didn't happen by the way. And in the years 1831, 1832 and 1833, one third of the Mississippi Choctaw would be removed from their homelands. By spring of 1832, 2,000 of the 6,000 who were removed in the first round remained. And I'll read to you from the family stories from the Trail of Tears taken from the Indian Pioneer History Collection, Grant Foreman, editor. I think this has some really harsh parts to it, so please be aware, listeners. So Choctaw woman Effie Oaks was interviewed in 1937 in Hugo, Oklahoma. She talked about her grandmother stating, She would tell us the history of the Indian territory and of their coming to this wilderness over the Trail of Tears. She was old and had nothing much to do but sit in the corner and live her life and tell us about it. She said that everybody who was able to had to walk, but if babies gave out of the parents could not carry them, the drivers of the ox wagons would just take them and swing them against a tree and knock their brains out and leave them by the roadside like a dog or a cat and not bury them. 
Her baby brother, Joel, who later became Supreme Court judge of the Choctaw Nation, was four years old, and very fat. She was just eight years old, but she took her turn at carrying him because he could not walk much. And she said that she would get so tired, she'd think she was going to die, but she would hang on to him. She was so afraid they'd kill him. She said she saw them kill babies who were too big to be carried and would give out walking. Nobody rode. Occasionally a woman was confined. She was permitted to ride for a few days. I read this account years ago in my hotel room at about 1 a.m. when I was on a work trip and it was so hard to read. I just, I sobbed and I thought about it for days. I've never forgotten these words. And I mean, there's a lot of accounts out there, even of, you know, you can even just Google it out there. It's actually not that easy to find, but if you, if you keep looking, you will find it as I did, but there's also accounts of soldiers who had a lot of terrible experiences that they never forgot for the rest of their lives. And if you think about it, not every soldier that was out there hated the Indians. They were just doing what they were commanded to do, or they'd lose their job um, or their rank or whatever it was. And so they would tell these just horrible nightmares that still come to them because of watching what the other soldiers were doing to the people and there was nothing they could do about it. So here's another account. Uh, Josephine Osray Latimer was also interviewed in 1937, talking about her grandparents who came to the Indian territory over the trail of tears. She said the Choctaws in Mississippi were a law abiding and cultured farming people. They had good homes, churches, and crossing over the Choctaws sang this song. Fare thee well to Nanealachuaya, <laughs> meaning to the land we love so dear. When the Choctaws reached Arkansas, the government had wagons and teams that were ready for them. The Indians were loaded into the wagons and they started for the government post near Little Rock, Arkansas. Quick pause here. I mentioned that the Choctaws were singing. They also sang uh, some hymns from what some accounts say. And there is a podcast coming up in this season from a woman who does an amazing job singing Choctaw hymns. And in fact, she wants to record every single Choctaw hymn. And in that podcast, we're talking about, oh my gosh, you know, to think about these weary, tired, exhausted people and their faith was keeping them strong. They were singing hymns. And I know that there's a lot of controversy around, oh, well, why would you take the faith of your oppressors? We could go into that for hours. And I don't think anybody really has all the answers. But just to know that at its core, to know that that's where they got their, their faith and their hope and their strength was to sing those hymns. I think it's, it's a beautiful story. But in loading, again, we're still telling the account of Josephine Osray Latimer. In loading, my people got separated from each other, for there were hundreds of wagons on this journey. When they reached the Wichita, meaning Fourth River River, it was on a rampage and out of banks. The roads were almost impassable. It was raining and cold. Even for all the well and strong, the journey was almost beyond human endurance. Many were weak and brokenhearted, and as night came, there were new graves dug beside the way. Many of the Indians contracted pneumonia, fever, and cholera. They camped a mile from the Wichita waiting for the water to recede so they could cross. While they were camped here, Ezekiel Roebuck, father of my grandfather, William Roebuck, became ill but said nothing. When the river was low enough to cross, everyone got in the wagons and started on the journey. But Ezekiel was so sick, he became unconscious and fell over. 
someone told the driver and he said, I will have to stop and put him out as we can't afford to have anyone with the cholera along. So they stopped by the roadside and put him out. My great grandmother said, you can put the children and me out too. And the driver replied, all right, but he will soon be dead. And you and your three children will have to walk the balance of the way. Each child had a small blanket. My great-grandmother had a paisley shawl, and she had brought along a bucket of honey and some cold flour from their home. This flour is made by parching corn and grinding it into a coffee mill until pulverized. This food she carried along for her six-month-old baby. She begged the driver for food and a blanket for her great-grandfather, and he grudgingly gave the blanket and one day's supply of food. Great-grandfather was conscious at times. He had dubbed great-grandmother Little Blue Hen, And when he became conscious of their plight, he would say, dear little blue hen, why didn't you take the children and go on? I can't last much longer and my soul will rest much easier if I knew you were safe. My body is just dust and will be all right any place. She replied, as long as you live, I'll be with you, dear. Then the little blue hen and two boys aged 10 and 12 set about fixing a bed. A Choctaw chief at the time was quoted in the Arkansas Gazette as saying that this removal had become a trail of tears and death. And thus the term trail of tears was the phrase describing the removal from there on out. The Choctaw were moved into Wichita and Samboys Mountains, as well as the Kaimichi River, which was in the Southeast Oklahoma area, of course, called Indian Territory at the time because Oklahoma hadn't yet become a state. That was a heavy story. So heavy. Oh, yeah. And you had mentioned earlier that not all of the Choctaws chose to leave Mississippi. And it sounds like maybe that didn't turn out Mm -hmm. so well. So what happened to them? Oh, that part's sad too. It's like you you stay or you go, you're going to have a terrible life. But for the 6,000 who chose to stay in Mississippi, they were harassed and intimidated by the government and the non-natives. And in 1849, they described their new life by saying, we have had our habitations torn down and burned our fences destroyed, cattle turned into the fields, and we ourselves have been scourged, manacled, fettered, and otherwise personally abused until by such treatment, some of our best men have died. Oh, my heart breaks. I mean, they they owned that. They grew up in that area, their ancestors and their ancestors before them going back. That's all they knew. Right. And, and now it's like somebody else is here and we're having this, you know, we're dying of starvation. We don't have a home anymore. Anyway. I know. And so then you have to wonder how many people actually make it over there. But so it wasn't just the Choctaw. What other tribes made that journey? Yeah. And I definitely want to, you know, kind of pay homage to some of them because I don't, I can't say all 67 tribes, but definitely keeping in mind that the Choctaw were not the only ones. There were also the Cherokee, Creek, Seminole, Chickasaw, Delaware, Sac and Fox, Shawnee, Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Peoria, Ottawa, Wyandotte, Seneca. Iowa, Kaw, Ponca, Odo, Missouri, and yeah, I'll, I'll stop there, but basically 67 different tribes that wow. made that, and some of them had to come from a lot further than say the Choctaw. So, and that's, you know, honestly though, that's why Oklahoma now is such a melting pot, so to speak for all these different tribes in one state. I mean, you want to talk diversity because I think a lot of times people want to just say, oh, they're Indian or Native American or American Indian, whatever phrase you you Mm -hmm. prefer. But each tribe is 
different. There's different cultures. Some of them are kind of like sister and brother tribes. Maybe they came from the other tribe in some cases or whatever, but they are different tribes. You, you can't just like say, oh, they're all Indian. And so they're all in this state and they all get, I mean, there are sometimes in some cases, centuries of some of those tribes not getting along and being warring tribes. And now they're all put in the same place. Yeah, They all just kind of got thrown together. Yeah. It's, oh, I can't even imagine. I would assume then that your ancestors came over during one of those earlier removals. Yeah. And so my Choctaw ancestors were among those who came over during the removal to Indian territory. Although I don't know what year of the three or four years that they came, but I'm still trying to make that connection of the Coley's and Canards and Davis families and who came over when, but I have actually exhausted the research here in Oklahoma. So if anyone from Mississippi might have that kind of expertise, please write to me at shameless plug um, at our youngman at native I'd love to hear from you. I could use some help. So, you know, your ancestors from Southwest Mississippi were removed to Indian territory. And then what do you know from that point? So in about 1839, my Choctaw great-great-great-great-grandmother, Liza, was born in Indian Territory and eventually married a Choctaw man named Willis Kennard. And that's Kennard with two ends, as far as we know. Um, Kennard with one end means duck in French. So I've always wondered if their non-native surname perhaps came from a French trader or something, but who knows? Maybe, Um, yeah. (laughs) You never know. But the ironic thing is Kennard is actually historically a Creek name, not a Choctaw name. So my assumption is that Liza, who I don't know her maiden name, was probably Choctaw. And then Willis, her husband, may have been Creek. Um, So if any historians out there know of any Willis and Liza Kennards, um, again, I don't know, I don't know Liza's maiden name, but um, you know, anyone out there among the Creek, please let me know. And I mean, there's a, I think there was a chief Rolly Kennard and I think his son was a Kennard. Um, but I always ignored them. Cause I was always like, well, these are Choctaw, they're not Creek. But back then there was all this kind of mixing of some mm-hmm. people were recorded as one versus another tribe. And then some of them went with the matrilineal line when they actually uh, went to enroll. And so you never know it either way, my family put the Choctaw stamp on mm-hmm. themselves and they didn't go with the Creek line. They went with the Choctaw line together. They had a daughter named Sophie Kennard in 1856. And then she marries a Joseph or Joe Coley in 1873. So Coley is the primary lineage that I tend to trace. So, Hey, any Coley's out there, C O L E Y please hit me up. FYI, the Coley's of Red Oak, Oklahoma are not in my lineage. I'm from a different Coley line. So much love to the Red Oak Coley's though. (laughs) But if you contact me, I don't think we'll find any kind of um, connection there unless it's way, way far back. Anyway, my cousin is a fantastic researcher and she found out that Ith Coley was recorded as the original Coley name in a Choctaw census from 1868. That's possibly the, um, the original Choctaw spelling is that Ith Coley. Got it. So Willis and Liza Kennard had Sophie Kennard, and this is the start of some interesting history, I'm assuming. Yeah. So Sophie Kennard marries a Joseph, like I said, or Joe Coley, C-O-L-E-Y, as we think the old spelling could have been K-O-L-I maybe. And they did very well for themselves actually. So so my cousin took me out to the Coley farm, which is no longer the Coley farm. And my aunt and I took some rocks from the place 
there were some people standing there when we took the rocks. I'm sure they were like, what the heck just happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are these two women doing? These people drove up in a truck that had a Texas plate and took rocks from our yard out in the yeah. middle of nowhere. <laughs> but I wish now I'd stopped and talked to them, but uh, and I don't even know who owns that land now, but it was pretty, it was a nostalgic moment getting to see where these folks had worked the earth and just loved it. They were noted in newspapers as prominent Choctaws and they had 10 children, Rosa, which is my great, great grandmother, and then Abner, but Abner seems to disappear after a couple of censuses. So being that he was born the same year as Edmund, I'm assuming Abner and Edmund may have been twins anyway. So they have Rosa and Abner and Edmund. Remember that name, Edmund. And then after Edmund was David, Sofa, Nora, Frank, Cillan, Cicero, and Noel, Noel being a boy. I think that's the order that they were born. I don't know if y'all have ever done some ancestry, you listeners out there, but just going through the records and you'll find that the censuses might have the same person a few years later that was only three years old. And they have her listed at 12 years old, just a couple of years later. And it's like, wait a minute, that can't happen. They get names wrong. They get dates ages wrong. There was the language barrier. A lot of times English speaking people coming to native houses, asking questions, and they didn't even speak the same language. And so it really makes it hard to research. <laughs> so that's the order that they were born. And several of these kids end up having really interesting stories. Some of them heartbreaking and some of them are just interesting. So stay tuned anyway. So it all starts with Joe and Sophie's firstborn Rosa, who again was my great, great grandmother. And on September 2nd, 1874, Rosa Coley is born. Sophie Coley was only 18 years old when she had that first baby girl. And a spoiler for y'all, I talk about Ella all the time, who was my great-grandmother. Well, Rosa was Ella's mother. So keep that in mind too, because you know what happens later to Ella, I believe has to do with some of the things that are going to happen to Rosa. So B, are you keeping up with all this? Are you furiously writing notes? I'm going to give you a test later. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. There's a lot of names, a lot of people that I'm supposed to remember. I know you just told me to remember Edmund. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now I have to remember Rosa. There's a Joe or Joseph in there. So yes. Yeah. yeah Joe. <laughs> a lot of names. The dad, right? Got it. <laughs> and then they have a lot of kids. So yes. <laughs> yeah. And I created I this 100 question test afterwards that yeah. I'm mailing to you right now, typing away. So please fill it out afterwards. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Remember we were talking about Costco and getting a of Kleenex. I think I'm going to need a palette of Dr. Peppers. <laughs> now you're talking. Yeah. Me too. Oh yes. <laughs> Let us take a fueling sip. Sweet nectar of the gods. I put myself on mute so y'all wouldn't hear that, but it was, it was delicious. Um, okay. So <laughs> Rosa is the firstborn child to Joe and Sophie Coley. And then they have a whole mess of kids. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a whole mess of kids. A whole mess. <laughs> You know, my mom and sister were in the grocery one time and this man walked up to them with one of those plastic bags in the vegetables area and he had some raw beans in it and he lifted up to them and said, ladies, is this a mess of beans? And my mama said, I would say that's a mess of beans, but not totally sure. <laughs> he said, well, my wife told me to go to the store and get a whole mess of beans. And that's everything you need to know about my Oklahoma. 
That's all you need to know. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to have to start using that here in California and see how yes. it goes. Yeah. You need to give me some more oaky phrases like that. <laughs> yes. We're totally bringing the Oklahoma to California. I hope you don't get kicked out. Yeah. Um, but we'll start with that phrase and then we'll add more after the West Coasters are feeling, you know, comfortable with the whole mess of phrase first, you know, yes. we'll take it in stages. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Back to Sophie and Joe and yeah. the whole mess of kids. Right, right. I, I'm so glad you put up with me, B. You're the best. But <laughs> <laughs> so Sophie basically had those 10 children and had her last child at age 35. So those kids were born over 17 years between 1874 and 1891. Okay. I haven't actually stopped and thought about that to go because again, I've been looking at so many records trying to figure out which ages were true no, this couldn't have been right. Yes, that had to have been it. And so that's my best guess is between 1874 and 1891. So can you have 10 children in 17 years, especially if you've got one or two sets of twins? That's a lot. Yeah. She was basically pregnant for that entire time. Always pregnant. Yeah. So again, just, I'm going to try to recap every now and then just to try to keep us all on the same page. So again, their children were Rosa and then Abner who died. I'm pretty sure he died because he just disappeared. Then Edmund that you're going to remember David, Sofa, Sofa died too, Frank, Nora, Cillin, Cicero, and Noel, which I think he died too. So it sounds like they all stayed pretty busy with all these kids. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was so common back then to also lose kids. So in the whole scheme of things, you know, she still had a big family despite a few deaths there. But I mentioned the Coleys were listed as prominent Choctaws in the papers and their 15 acre farm in Sandboys, Oklahoma was prosperous. And keep in mind, there was the Dawes Act of 1887, but their land allotments hadn't been doled out yet. So they didn't have their 160 acres that were going to be allotted to each person or, or however it worked with their families. So Joe was a farmer. This is the dad. Joe was a farmer and business person and a trustee of Dwight Indian Mission School. He was paid $16 for eight months of being a trustee and the community loved the Coley's, but that eventually soon took a dark turn. And I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. So let me actually interrupt you for a minute. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners more about the Dawes Act for those who may not know? Yeah. I mentioned the Dawes Act in 1887, a new federal policy was issued, which aimed to destroy tribal sovereignty. Basically, the government wanted to give native individuals land rather than continuing to give the tribes areas of land like reservations. So the Dawes Act was enacted and each native was given a Dawes Rolls number and they were allotted 160 acres of land. That's what we call land allotments. Typically, it was 160 acres and therefore a long, complicated story. I'm going to make it short, though. 27 million acres were stripped from the Indian nations. And so it destroyed their tribal sovereignty. Lately, some things have been happening in Oklahoma that, that you and I have talked about where it's exciting because we're starting to get our tribal sovereignty back and as it pertains to jurisdiction, like legal jurisdiction. And that's a, that's a big deal in Indian country right now. So anyway, to bring all that into perspective of today, my Coley relatives signed up on the Dawes rolls. In fact, Joe and Sophie were the first to sign up and they were each given a roll number. And then for my lineage from then on today, each child can receive their CDIB or certificate degree of Indian blood from the federal government. Now, every tribe's different. So some you have to be full blood to be a member or half, some you have to be a quarter, some of them in perpetuity, you're always going to, until the bloodline just gets so diluted, there's nothing left. You can still sign up to be with the tribe. So 
for instance, I have a card with my CDIB number on it stating I'm federally documented and the lineage is traced from those first relatives who applied and were accepted based on their being Choctaw. So for non-native listeners, you may hear natives ask each other or others, and sometimes it's meant to tease or to be mean or to, to really see how Indian you really are. They may ask, do you have your card or are you card carrying and so on. And, and that's what that means. And it's hmm. a, you know, kind of tricky situation because some may have the situation where they know they're native, their parents may clearly both be full blood, but their ancestors may have never registered on the Dawes rolls, but that doesn't make them any less native. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, you are what you are. And on the other hand, some people are insulted by this whole notion of ca- a card making you seem more Indian than others, or, Hey, the government turned you into a number and you're colonized by hanging on to your federally registered number and using it for different things. And so some people tap their cards, putting it in other people's faces. That's not cool. Anyway, I just, it's kind of a controversial thing and, and it's too bad. I think we should all just love each other. I'm registered through one side of the family, but my great grandmother, Ella, her husband, he was Choctaw too, but his family never registered. So they were told by a non-native man who is in the history books now of screwing some people out of their land, telling them to go somewhere else and he'd take care of things. And somehow he had intended to take their land. So he told them to go to Texas and they did. And they missed the whole application to the Dawes rolls because there was a window where you had to go and enroll. There was like a fence set up and you walk in. Yeah. So they were never enrolled into the tribe and they never received their land allotments, which if you think about it, you're pushed out of your land. You have no other choice. Those land allotments might be your only future. That might be the only thing that keeps you alive and, and gives you a legacy for your children. And so to miss that was devastating. So my great grandpa's family went to Texas instead of Indian territory. And a long time later, they realized they had made a mistake and it was too late to register. So my blood quantum level, which is the amount of Choctaw that I am is technically higher than I always say it is because I'm only registered through my great grandmother's lineage. And I don't legally claim that other side of the family's Choctaw blood because they didn't register. So even though I'm biologically more Choctaw than I claim, if that makes sense, is, is that clear as mud or what? Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's so interesting to listen to you even talk about that because that it's so unique. I don't know anyone else, any right. other, you know, nationality or anything that even talks about that type of thing. So it, to me, it's just super fascinating. Oh, thanks. To, to hear it. Yeah. So, so okay. So strange and bizarre too. And yeah. it's like, oh, you have a number. Oh, you have a number. Yeah. It's been passed right. down for generations. What? Or, you know, the new number comes from a certain lineage and it's crazy. Exactly. And then for you, like one side of the family was registered, the other side was not, but you're still Choctaw on both sides. Oh, totally. Right, right. So even though sentimentally, of course, I claim it all because they're my family, I just can't legally claim all of it. That is wild. Yeah. (laughs) So weird. Yeah. So, okay. Back to the Coley. So in 1889, the Coley kids went to Dwight Indian Mission School in Marble, Oklahoma, and man, it is way out there. September through February 8th of 1889, the roster lists Rosa, Frank, and David Coley, along with some other kids from the community, again, on the roster. And then their older brother, Edmund, ding, ding, Edmund, he was the teacher. 
So oh. remember it's Rosa, then Edmund, and then the whole other mess of siblings. Okay. Interesting. And, um, but you know, even later rosters list Frank, David, and Cicero Coley at the school. But here's the interesting thing about Dwight Indian Mission. Many years ago, I set up what I called my Choctaw road trip. So my husband, my mom, and my aunt and I hopped into our, you know, F-150 pickup. And I followed an ancestry trail of sorts that I made up that basically it was made of family cemeteries and towns and places where my ancestors would have walked in different parts of Oklahoma. And honestly, not even where I grew up. I grew up among the Plains tribes in Anadarko. Uh, you know, obviously my family's Choctaw. So we, you know, I understood it, but I understood a whole lot more about some of the other tribes than I did mm -hmm. about my own. So anyway, um, so it was good to go into that area and delve in more, not just drive through McAllister, but go into McAllister, go to Durant, all these different places and see where my family, you know, actually lived. So I do talk further about the school, Dwight Indian Mission in another episode. It has an interesting history and the grounds were over the last several years used as a church camp, but I hear it's been closed, which is such a bummer, but I'm, I'm glad I toured it when I could, when it was still alive. So mm -hmm. Anyway, we enjoyed seeing Dwight Indian Mission and the other areas of historical significance to my family. And when we got back to Wayne, Oklahoma to drop off my aunt, and that's where our land allotments still are today, we came inside the house for a little bit. And my other aunt, my aunt Sandra, she was there. And as we told her about our adventures that day and how much fun we had, she said, hey, I have a copy of the roster from Dwight and it has our Coley member names on it. And I just about dropped my jaw. That's awesome. <laughs> I know, right? I was like, why did you tell us? You knew we were going. Well, she yeah, didn't no know kidding. we were going to Dwight. It's not her fault. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. I know it could have <laughs> saved us some, some headache, but right? I, I, at that time, again, I knew nothing about the roster or I just thought it was a cool school. So, you know, I had no idea that the mission we had just gone to see, especially the older building that was there, that amazingly is still standing is in pretty good shape was my Coley family's old stomping grounds. My great, great uncle Edmund taught school in that very place. I'll, I'll post pictures on my native Chalk Talk Facebook page. Cause I have took really cool pictures out there. We nice. may never get a chance to go in that building again, anyone, any of the general public. So yeah, true. Yeah. True. I'm glad you were able to go when you did. Oh, uh, it was really a godsend. I swear sometimes. Cool trip. Yeah. So I had asked the gentleman who showed us around Dwight. Indian mission, if they had the rosters or any records of when it was a native school. And he said, no, that they had been given to a museum. And by the way, later I contacted the museum and they had no idea what I was talking about. So I, I assume he gave them to them and who knows what they did with them. Yeah. But so those records are probably gone forever, but my aunt somehow had made copies. So crazy. Random. <laughs> yeah. So random. I was like, what the heck? She just comes out all in innocently. Oh, I have by the way. <laughs> so here I have this copy of a roster of my Coley family at Dwight Indian Mission in 1889. And something else of significance happened in Indian Territory that year. So on April 22nd, 1889, at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, 50,000 non-Indians participated in the land run, which consisted of the claiming of homesteads across 2 million acres. So I'll back it up a little. Natives of the plains like Comanche, Apache, Kiowa, and so on lived in Indian territory. Then natives from all over the country were taken from their homelands and brought to Indian territory and told, this is your promised land. <laughs> and I'm sure the plains Indians just love that, right? 
And they were such, they were warriors. They were some hardcore natives that would steal horses, go into each other's camps, steal their kids, their women, that kind of thing. Very strong Indians. And, but then allotments of land were given out to the natives. And then certain parts of those lands were opened up to non-native settlers. So it's not enough that they had the rest of America to settle, meaning, you know, these folks that came into the country and started taking over, they had to also take up what little was left to the natives. I mean, you've probably seen the flyer that was printed in 1910 saying Indian land for sale, get a home of your own, easy payments, possession within 30 days, find lands in the West land in Oklahoma was going for $19 and 14 cents per acre. It's just a travesty. I'm talking about a lot today. So I'm going to try to keep us on track and remind us again, where we are in history and with this family and all that. So swinging back to the Dawes Act of 1887, in 1893, Senator Henry L. Dawes was appointed by President Grover Cleveland to negotiate land with the Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole tribes. And those are our five civilized tribes um, that's what they're called. And in 1893, the Dawes rolls allotted the land to the tribal members, which again, abolished tribal governments and recognized federal laws. So again, their sovereignty is gone. They're not able to govern themselves. And now the federal government has taken over. So I had stated earlier that the Coley's, these prominent business-minded Coley's who one of them was even a teacher, which was a highly respected role in those communities. Thank you, teachers, even of today. But their story took a dark turn. So in 1896, Joe Coley, he and his son, Edmund Coley, the teacher at Dwight Indian Mission School, they are arrested. Oh, well, what happened? I know, right? You're going to have to tune in tomorrow. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, tell me now. Just kidding. Um, So yeah, what happened to these prominent Choctaws that, you know, the newspapers would talk about? They were doing really well for themselves. Well, it starts with Rosa's story. By the way, Rosa, who is, again, my great-great-grandmother, goes by Rosie quite a bit. So I might accidentally call her that. So bear with me, but she had a heck of a time. She married six different men. Some of them she was married to more than one at a time, but we're not judging. This was Indian country and and following the white man's laws weren't exactly top priority for these Choctaws who didn't really even speak English. And her first husband would cause the downfall of the entire family. And even of some innocent Choctaw men who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So in 1895, Rosa marries one John B. Drake, a posse for the deputy United States Marshal, Russell Vance, who was a Choctaw. And I believe her husband was a Choctaw as well. So I I think John B. Drake was a Choctaw, but I'm not totally sure. Anyway, so John B. Drake, Rosa's husband, didn't win any husband of the year awards. Um, He had been beating Rosa. And so her family had forced her to leave him. So they, the couple hadn't been living together for a while, which made Mr. Drake very grumpy. Uh, Apparently she really loved him though. And it was a struggle to stay away, but her family was trying to keep her away from him. And then there was a church camp meeting one night amongst the Choctaws in August of 1896. Here we go. So this was just one year after Rosa and John B. Drake had married and subsequently separated. Keep in mind, Choctaws at that time were very into their Christianity. They were big into their hymns, as I mentioned earlier, and their church camp meetings that would sometimes go on for days. And they were a very tight-knit community there in San Boys. 
And by the way, I have a really hard time saying sandboys, which is how we say it because technically it's very French. It looks like sambois. Yeah. I didn't even know how to pronounce it until you said it. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, what's the real pronunciation and what's the Oklahoma pronunciation, which is actually the confirmed way we say it, you know? Yep. <laughs> so it's not sambois, it's sandboys. So here we have the Coley family at this church meeting one night, and I have to share ahead of time that the innocent folks I mentioned earlier that got pulled into these events that are about to happen, their names were Abel McGilberry, Isaac King, and Norris Cooper, and they were all Choctaw as well, and I don't think any of them spoke English. So these three names, along with the Coley name, were very well known in the area. They were big families. They were always together. They were helping each other out. They were doing church socials. They even helped raise each other's kids. So there's a little background there. I could go, I could do a whole other podcast on Cooper's Bend and all the cool stuff that goes on there. And I, anyway, I'll read to you from the Fort Smith Times of Fort Smith, Arkansas, October of 1901. The story of the prosecution is that while a camp meeting was in progress about four miles from San Boys, Joe Coley's house was burned. He and other defendants left the camp meeting for the Coley home. Coley suspected Drake, so that's Rose's husband, estranged husband, of having burned his home. So they're saying Drake came and burned uh, Joe Coley's home while wow. they were at the camp meeting. So Drake was his son-in-law, but the latter had separated from his wife and there was ill feeling between Coley and Drake. It will be alleged that Coley enlisted the aid of the other defendants and his son, Edmund, that through McGilberry, he borrowed a 10-gauge shotgun of Russell Vance. So remember, Russell is John B. Drake's boss and a Winchester 44 caliber rifle of Isaac uh, Richardson, which Richardson's not his last name. They got that wrong. Again, there were so many newspaper articles that have been wrong over the year, like misspellings like crazy. So, and, and remember that Again, so Russell Vance is the posse and he's the boss of Rose's estranged husband, John B. Drake. And so they've killed this guy who basically is a, you know, assistant posse or whatever you'd want to call it. So then they proceeded to Drake's house in the night that Coley, his son and Norris, one of the other guys, the innocent guys rode in the yard and the others remained on their horses nearby that the Coley boy held the horses of his father and Norris who walked up to the Drake house, finding Drake asleep on a pallet on his porch that he started to raise up when Coley fired the shotgun missing Drake. And then Norris fired the rifle inflicting a mortal wound into the chest. And then Coley fired again, hitting Drake in the arm. Thus far, the evidence is circumstantial, but the government expects to prove by Isaac and others that Norris was more than one occasion confessed to having shot and killed Drake, implicating King and McGilberry as accessories. Coley and his son are dead. Also Johnny King and Thompson, others are the original defendants. Colonel Cravens claims a complete alibi for the defendants. He said it was true that they accompanied Coley to his burning home. My newspaper article gets a little cut off at the end. Okay, I see what it says, but that they left him to return via sand boys to the camp meeting when they were overtaken by Coley, who asked the assistance of McGilberry as interpreter to borrow the gun of Russ Vance that he might protect himself and his property from further injury. That Coley then passed on ahead of them while they took another road to the camp meeting and that they heard and saw the flash of the gun, presumably at Drake's house, while at a distance of a quarter of a mile. 
Um, so the defendants are well-known young Choctaws and have the moral support of Governor Dukes, ex-Governor McCartan. McCartan, by the way, is was a Choctaw chief too. J.S. Forrest and John McRare, who are present at the trial and will give evidence as to the good character of these defendants. The article mentions that Joe and Edmund were dead. So it's like, wait, what, what happened there? Well, at the time of this article, Joe and Edmund, Rose's dad and brother, had been in prison for a while and had just died from the awful conditions at the time. So there were even more Choctaws included in this story too. You know, as, as we talked about the Kings, McGilberry's, um, that's tongue twister. So anyway, okay, again, so at this time, Joe and Edmund, father and son, have died in prison and Abel McGilberry, Isaac King, and Norris Cooper are on trial. They were actually pulled into this thing purely by accident, of course, and not to mention none of them spoke English really. I mean, it says one of them was an interpreter, but they really only spoke Choctaw. And so they were trying to explain what was going on to the officials and there was a huge language barrier. So there's a book about the incident called Touched by Greatness by Wayne and Carolee Maxwell. And there's a twist on the story that isn't in the papers. The book says, Abel and two relatives, Isaac King and Norris Cooper, were gathering corn from Abel's fields and piling it in his corn crib when an acquaintance, Joe Coley, came walking briskly by, almost running across the field. He began telling them in his Choctaw language how he and two other fellows had just caught up with a thief and had hung the man down in the woods next to the river. The other men who had been with them had fled, and he asked Abel and the others to come help him get the dead man down from the tree. Abel and his cousins went to help and continued to accompany Joe Coley to the trading post with the hunged man slung over one of Abel's mules. The men thought they were doing the right thing, but somehow the sight of Indians carting a dead man, Indian or white, into the only civilization for miles around frightened people, and the U.S. Marshals were eventually notified. With all parties being Indian, the case should have been investigated by Choctaw lawmen and tried in tribal courts. Federal jurisdiction was still in place, however, over Indian affairs, so the case was investigated by the U.S. Marshals. When the Marshals asked Coley if anyone else was with him during the hanging, he misunderstood what they were asking him, and he said yes, naming Abel, Isaac, and Norris. The Indian men accused only understood a little English and spoke even less. In the confusion, Coley unknowingly implicated Isaac King. In the confusion, Coley unknowingly implicated Isaac King, Norris Cooper, and Abel McGilberry as the ones who helped hang the man. All four men were jailed and taken to Fort Smith for trial. All four were sentenced to life at hard labor in the federal penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas. Trust me, you do not want to go there. The other men who had been with Coley were never sought after or questioned. So what a mess, right? I mean, it's so sad. All these people are pulled into this situation when initially they were all there to help. And so all of them were sentenced to go to prison. So which was it? So did John B. Drake set the Coley house on fire and was woken from sleep and shot by the Coleys? Or did they hang him? Or maybe it was both. Oh my gosh, this just sounds like a whole telenovela or something. Right. This is just <laughs> such a crazy story. It's so crazy. And what's so sad is they had, I mean, don't you know, the mob mentality is, right. oh, they're Indian. They must be guilty. And what if, you know, there was a lot more vigilanteism back then. 
I don't think it would have been too crazy for someone to shoot somebody that's a beating his daughter and burn down his house. I'm not saying killing anybody's ever right. But back then, sometimes that's how they dealt with things. And anyway, just such a sad story. So Joe and his son Edmund die in prison. And Abel, Isaac, and Norris write a letter written on their behalf by an English speaker to the president of the United States, pleading for their release, considering they had nothing to do with the murder itself. So my cousin sent me um, a copy of a letter that had been written by hand that's on the OU Digital Library site of Chief Green McCurtain, urging the president to consider the men's pardons. So this event occurred due to the combination of language barriers leading to additional innocent people being pulled into the situation, not to mention the biggest factor of all, the fact that they were Indians. So the result is innocent men being imprisoned and dying of poor living conditions. And from here, the family just wasn't the same. But Sophie became a housemaid. I still have research to do on what happened to the Coley farm. So I don't know what happened with that. I assume mm -hmm. it was sold or taken over or something, but keep in mind, this happened in the dreaded 1896, which means one Sophie's youngest child, Noel is only like six years old. Sofa at age 18 and Noel at age six were still alive in a census in 1896. And Joe Coley, the dad was listed at as dead at that time, which means both Sofa and Noel died sometime after Joe Coley passed, if that makes sense. Um, there are no more records of them after that 1896 census. I, I just, I'm dying to know what happened to them. I mean, we can't, how can we honor them if we have no idea, you know, where they're buried, what, you know, and right. I know that they're gone, you know, it doesn't matter in a way, but it does matter. And I, I want to be able to talk about their stories and I just, there's so very little to say. Yeah. No, I totally get it. Although to me, it's amazing that you've gotten this much information about them. To be honest with you, I know that's true. Actually, <laughs> I agree with you because, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, but it's been a lot of all nighters trying to find this information and, and making a full out of myself and, you know, asking random people if they happen to know information about this and that. And it's been pieced together mostly by documents I find online or in libraries and stuff. But, but yeah, I, I have to admit, I'm excited that I've been able to find this so that these people, their stories were hard. And if this is the least we can do, it's the least we can do. So <laughs> exactly. But, you know, my assumption is that, um, these kids that I was talking about, they, they passed away somehow. And Sophie was left to mourn without her husband who had also passed. She was mourning him too. And don't forget, Sophie was, um, she not only lost her husband, but she also lost the oldest son. So Edmund and Joe both died in prison. They died that, that would be a terrible death, I would think, you know? So, okay. And I was making a few points about, you know, okay. If I think about what Sophie was going through. So number three, Sophie still had children at home that she had to take care of. And they were 18, 16, 12, eight, and six. What does she do with these remaining children at home? What would you do? I mean, back then it wasn't easy for the widows at 43 years old. She was obviously trying to make ends meet as a housemaid, as she's listed in a census. Um, living with this family there. So she decides to make a move that will affect a couple of generations to come. So that same dreaded year, 1896, that her husband and son died, Sophie enrolls in the Dawes Rolls, which is a very smart thing to do because, mm -hmm. you know, A, we're able to be federally recognized, but also she needed her, her descendants to get land. 
And I just recently found out, I mentioned a little bit earlier that when they would go enroll for the DAWs rules, I always assumed, okay, they go to a lawyer's office or something, or they go to an Indian agency, but I don't know who was running. I know it was the government um, doing the interviews and finding out who really was Choctaw and who was not, because there were some people who were trying to be fraudulent, but there were tents, like they would come into these towns and they'd set up these huge tents and people would be in line for hours and hours to go in there sign paperwork, get an interview, have someone talk on their behalf. Cause sometimes they would have to bring someone else in to talk for that other person and say, yes, I've known her my whole life. She did grow up in Kina and you know, things like that. When she enrolled in the Dawes rolls in 1896, it wasn't approved until 1903. So that meant in 1903, she and her children could start collecting their land allotments. And again, in many cases, that's 160 acres. But Sophie must have still been struggling because on July 20th, 1904, J.D. Anderson, a white man living in Sulphur, Oklahoma, and known as the so-called wealthiest landowner in the region, signed a letter of guardianship. And for $2,082 or about $65,000 in today's money, Mr. Anderson was able to take guardianship of two of Sophie's children, Cicero and Nora. So the agreement stated that he would be authorized and empowered to collect and receive all monies, property, and effects that are now or hereafter may become due to him by said wards, and in general to do and perform all and singular the duties devolving him as such guardian by law, or that may be enjoined upon him by the lawful order, sentence, or decree of any court having competent jurisdiction." By 1910, the census that includes the J.D. Anderson family, this white family from um, Sulphur, Oklahoma, lists three children as being adopted by the Andersons, Cicero, 13 years old, Cillin, 11, and Nora, 7. And I'm assuming he didn't um, adopt them, but was just their guardian from all records I can find, but that's just how they list them on the mm. census. And of course, I'm assuming Sophie turned her children over because she simply couldn't afford to take care of them. But later in my research, I found that Frank Coley, so that's another one of the siblings and one of the Mesa kids, when he was 15 years old, he was taken into the guardianship too under J.D. Anderson. So then it was Frank, Cicero, Cillin, and Nora, although I can't find the actual letters of guardianship for both Frank and Cillin, but I know they were under his care. So in Frank's interview to obtain his land allotments when he was 21 years old, Frank was recorded saying, when my father died, a fellow wanted to be appointed my guardian. I was then 15 years old. And I've seen him on some censuses under Mr. Anderson's care at some point. So I have so many documents. I can't keep up with all of them, but I, yeah. I think I have his letter of guardianship <laughs> somewhere. I just can't find it. But so poor Sophie. I mean, what a bad year that 1896. Can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, I mean, how much heartbreak can one woman take? She went from a happy home with love and community and a large family to her husband and son being imprisoned and dying from such horrible conditions to her children becoming scattered and some of them dying as well. And then some of them being taken in by this guy that who knows what he was like. Well, actually we do know what he was like. Yeah, it's not good. But by the way, uh, Leavenworth, the prison where Joe and Edmund died in that same year, 1896, a new federal penitentiary was authorized by Congress. So you know, people are dying in the prison because the conditions are so bad. I mean, Edmund was a young man. 
he goes to prison and he dies very soon after that. So that shows you how bad the prison system was. I was trying to find more records of what the conditions were like in the late 1800s there, but all I could find was just horrible living conditions. That's all I could find. So yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, there we go again with that 1896. Ugh. So, okay. Ugh. So this J.D. Anderson, he took these kids in to be their guardian and you know basically he paid a good amount of money to be able to do so right yeah right and it took me a while to try to understand that i would like to talk to someone who's more of an expert in this but from what i can understand guardians could purchase bonds from the government which were somewhat like loans that gained interest over time so i found this book called survey of conditions of the indians in the united states hearings before a subcommittee of the Committee on Indian Affairs, United States Senate, 71st Congress, second session, part 14, November, 1930. That's a mouthful. <laughs> but it's where a subcommittee, so in, in there, the content of the book is, it's where a subcommittee of the Committee of Indian Affairs, they got together for these hearings. So you'll see a Senator interviewing a guy that was say in charge of dispersing funds to guardians of Native American children. And it's super interesting. So- uh, okay. Yeah. That sounds like a real page turner. Definitely. <laughs> I, I get it now. I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from. So, I mean, I guess I should say it's so interesting for ancestry weirdos like me, but <laughs> um, are you sure you want to be my friend? <laughs> I know as long as you're fascinated, I mean, you can read it and then you can just give me the highlights. <laughs> So, oh, okay. So, you know, the Killers of the Flower Moon movie that's coming out this year, hopefully 2022, directed by Martin Scorsese. That's one of the thousands of stories of non-natives who were taking guardianship of the Osage in some cases. And I, I won't say any more spoilers. You know that movie? Yeah. Coming out. Okay. So this is just more of that. If you think about it, my family were victims of this guardian concept that originally was designed by the government for, for people to take natives under their wings, especially in the case when they were orphaned or were supposed to help navigate and be a liaison for native Americans trying to function in a very non-native world with legal terms and paperwork and um, new concepts in day-to-day -day living. But it didn't take long for many of those guardians to let their greed take over and they were all about those Indian land allotments, those 160 acres the government was allotting to the tribes as restitution for taking their land. So, so you've got this, you know, sweet little Indian kid that has 12 years old and is going to get their 160 acres. They're an orphan. And so these guardians come along and they're like, oh, we'll help you. No problem. So they kind of take them in as almost like slaves. And that's what my ancestors had to, to deal with. They worked on the farm and they worked really hard and they were abused and very sad stories. So to paint a picture of how things worked, but also how things were also complicated, here's an excerpt from the book. That's exciting book. And you'll hear Senator Lynn J. Frazier, who was from the uh, North Dakota. He was the chairman of the Senate committee on Indian affairs. And he was leading this commission spurred by Indian reform in the 1920s. So he was determined to ensure that funds were not being misappropriated and the Indians weren't being mistreated and the law was being carried out. So thank you, Mr. Frazier. Here's Senator Frazier interviewing Mr. Wallace, who is an attorney in their probate courts. So here goes, uh, should I do like a Senator Frazier voice, like real deep and such, and then, yeah. <laughs> and then high pitch for the attorney? Yeah, I can read the part of Mr. Wallace. Sure. Oh, okay. Okay. So you be the attorney. Your <laughs> listeners, we're about to enact this courtroom drama. So, okay. So I'm going to read Senator Frazier's part. This is fun. 
1925, has there been much money lost through the guardians of these Indians? Uh, There's been quite a lot of it lost and wasted. How is that? Tell us briefly how the money was lost or wasted. I've been here as a lawyer in court and as probate attorney. (laughs) I've been familiar with guardianship for 35 years. It is hard for guardians to understand the difference between their money and their ward's money. They can hardly get that distinction. Are not the guardians under bond? Oh, these guardians down here have bonds, but the bonds are not of any value. You see, if a guardian is appointed for a child when it is eight or 10 years old, that guardianship runs until he is of age. And if the bond is good in the beginning, in eight or 10 years, the bond is bad. By the way, that's crazy. Is there not provision for a new bond? Oh, yes, you can hang it up and ask for a new bond, but... These Indian guardians, or most of them, cannot give a bond that is worth much. A bond will be made of $500 or $600, sometimes $1,000. Wow. Do not these bonds have to be approved by someone in the government department? Hey, wait, now you're doing Southern? I could have done a Southern accent. Oh, well, yeah, I didn't know I was doing Southern. So yeah, bring it on. So now I have to The county judges approve the bond. (laughs) That is all under the jurisdiction of the county court. In a year or two years, some of the bondsmen will die. It will become worthless and you cannot collect on any bond. Well, if a bondsman dies or becomes worthless, a new bond should be put up. New bonds should be required. Yes, new bonds should be required. (laughs) You understand a responsible person will not take a guardianship to run for 15 or 20 years unless it is for some of their relatives. When you find that the bond of one of these guardians has become valueless for any reason or other, do you report it to the county court? I usually call the attention of the court to it and require a new bond. But there still are some losses. How much has been lost in the last three or four years? There are now on the dockets in this district over 2,000 guardianships and administrations pending. Holy cow. I know, right? Many of them have been running for years and years and ought to have been closed up. Minors haven't become of age. Often, when a minor becomes of age and he has a guardian, the minor under the law of the state has a right to make settlements with us without the intervention of the court. They can give a final receipt. That is done most of the time. They will go ahead and do that and give a receipt and settle up. Wow. So wow. That's crazy. So basically this bond, it could just have a zero value at the end of all. Exactly. Everything. That's insane. And and by the way, we may be cutting up. We realize it's a very sad and serious situation. We just have a really hard time acting like human adults when we're together. So, yeah. but we do realize the seriousness <laughs> of all of this. It's just, yeah. And by the way, very nice Southern voice. And Thanks. if we really were Okies, we would sound a lot more hick than, you know, Louisiana Southern or whatever. <laughs> I don't know why. I just have always wanted to have like, you know, to speak in a Southern voice as an attorney. Yeah. So the bond could have zero value, or it also sounds like the bond could just age out. It's crazy. I, yeah. I you know, you got to love when the government's in control. What a mess. And here's just a few more facts that I found in the book that I wanted to read to you. This is uh, the attorney, Mr. Wallace, talking. I think I'll use my Rachel Youngman voice for this one, but (laughs) so we can actually get through it. Um, About 2,000 guardianships pending, some active, some inactive, and many that should be closed. This is a, um, he's answering some questions, but I just thought the answers were interesting. 
Um, there's one from one to five minors in each guardianship case. So they had multiple kids under their care. So the laws are competent under the Oklahoma laws, but it is enforcing them or administering them that causes the trouble when trouble occurs. It is not the fault of the law, but the administration of the law, like all laws that causes failure or injury. I thought that point was interesting because basically he's saying we have these laws, but are they being enforced? And Mr. Wallace, I think it's like, just one attorney um, serving all these cases. And I was reading more about his life in another book because I went down this long rabbit hole. I was up almost two nights in a row doing this. <laughs> when they were talking about his life, you know, they were saying he was exhausted. He was working so many hours. There were, you know, things were slipping through the cracks. And then here comes the senator questioning him. And the guy's kind of like, dude, you haven't given me any other people. I'm doing this on my own for the most part. I mean, they had assistants and things like that, but he, he was way overwhelmed here. They had this, they had set this up. So they, the government had set it up to where, okay, now we can have these guardians that are going to help the natives that their intentions were actually pretty good. What they didn't anticipate was the guardians becoming evil, well, evil turds and who wanted to just take advantage of these kids. And so they put all these things in place, but they didn't, provide enough resources, enough people to be able to keep up with this huge demand of all this new stuff going on in this um, about to become a new state. So under the laws of Oklahoma, actually at, at this point, Oklahoma was already a state. So anyway, under the laws of Oklahoma, the ward, if over 14 years of age, so the person that's come under guardianship has a right to designate his guardian. And if the court finds the guardian suitable, it is mandatory to appoint him. Under 14 years, the parent or next of kin have the right to nominate the guardian. And if the nominee is a suitable person, he must be appointed. Sometimes the probate attorney protests the appointment of some person and the court then appoints some suitable person. Appointment of guardians and administrators is controlled by mandatory statutes of the state of Oklahoma. So, you know, something that we may all be thinking, but not saying is, was this really a safe practice anyway, this guardianship? And I know the answer to that from what my own family went through, not saying mental, physical, and sexual abuse is common among all those situations. I mean, think of what many people thought of natives back then. They saw them as dirt under their feet, slaves, a nuisance. So the chances of these children having just great experiences being away from their families, introduced into a whole new world of people they don't know is probably pretty slim. So in fact, Cillin, so remember how I said I couldn't find Frank's letter of guardianship and I couldn't find Cillin's? Well, let's talk about Cillin. So she was like the next to last child born to Joe and Sophie Coley. And she was one of the four Coley kids at the guardian JD Anderson's home. And um, so JD, this man who, from what we understand was abusive to these children, he had a son named Rufus born in um, 1882. Well, guess what Rufus does? He marries Cillin. So Cillin is basically in servitude in their home, J.D. Anderson abusing them, and his son Rufus marries one of these servants, Cillin. Wow. Now, right? I was just like, what? Good grief. This was like six or seven years ago when I found this one out just through research, and I just, again, dropped my jaw. So now it could be that they were in love. I mean, it could have been innocent and good, or it could be that JD Anderson was like, Hey, go marry one of those Cully girls and you can get their land, which was extremely common. 
Um, now I tend to think they were in love because, you know, when Rufus dies, there's nothing mentioned about his father, you know, preceded in death by these people in the obituary, which would normally entail the late JD Anderson and things like that. There's no mention of him. And it seems like there wasn't much interaction between those families from what I can tell. So later, J.D. Anderson and his wife moved to New Mexico, and then I think to Texas. But either way, I've always thought that was bizarre from servant to bride. And then all of a sudden, they never, those families don't seem to come together anymore, Rufus and Cillin and J.D. Anderson and his wife, Josie, just crazy. So and here's another thing. Anyone who has done research of their ancestors knows, as I talked earlier, this and many other time periods are the worst because- some people writing the censuses couldn't spell very well. And especially with Indian names, they were sounding them out. So with every new person taking a census or jotting down names, a person's name could be spelled 10 different ways in these records. So you think of records being official, but there's a lot of human error in there and it makes it so hard to research, but, but it also makes it rewarding when you do find interesting things. I call those nuggets of gold, but on top of everything being hard to research and what I'm really trying to get to is it's the same with dates, especially when it comes to American Indians, because they weren't keeping time and they weren't watching a calendar all the time. So on some documents, you'll see a birth date being 1900 and other documents, it might say 1898 and it's just a mess. So my great grandmother never even really knew her real birth date. So we have two birth dates written down for her. Oh, wow. And we, yeah. We, we picked one that we celebrated every year, but the other one, I don't, I don't know where each of them came from. So, but anyway, so Cillin gets married to Rufus in 1903 or does she in my records of her, listen to this in the 1900 census with JD Anderson, it says she's 11, which means she would have been born in 1889, which means she would have gotten married at 14 years old. But hmm. the census with her mother in 1896 says she's eight years old, which means she'd be born in 1888, which means she'd be 15 years old when she got married. I am so sorry if my math is wrong. I, I was doing this at like four o'clock in the morning. So, and then on the Choctaw roll, she says that she's 17 years old in, and that's in 1903. So she would have been born in 1886, which means she would have been 17 years old when she got married, which makes me feel a little bit better. But then Stillen says on her marriage certificate that she's 18 in 1903 when she got married. So she'd be born in 1885, which means again, she'd be 18 when she got married. And then on her headstone, it says that she was born, you know, when she died, it says August 10th, 1884, which would have meant she was 19 years old when she was married. I mean, it, it give or take a few, you know, it could have been that she turned a certain age in that year. So there's all this kind of weird stuff around the dates and when people got married, if she did get married when she was like 14, that kind of makes me worry about that whole theory I had where JD Anderson said to, you should get married to a Coley girl so you can get her land. I just right. don't know. We'll never know. Right. Oh, and it's, it's sad. Hey, it's sad when people pass away, but there were these family members that we had that would have been the only ones that knew some of these stories and had photos and he's gone. He recently passed away before I could meet him. So, um, the mystery will probably never be solved. Okay. So as you can see, it's a mess. And now my friends, I have much more to share with you about my ancestors. So next season, season three in the fall of 2022, stay tuned for a continuation of this story where we'll delve in more to my ancestral history and background.
but fair warning when I continue this particular series next season, it's a little gruesome. So homeschool families and teachers, you may want to listen first to the first and second episodes. I believe there will only be two, but just to determine if it's appropriate for your different age groups and kids that you're around. So these stories do though, deserve to be told for age appropriate listeners. I'm not here to sugarcoat the truth. I'm not. And we've been you know, our ancestors have for too many years been told to put away your culture, do not speak, don't tell what's happening, don't speak your language, we'll know more. So get ready, folks, we're going to learn a lot. And we're going to honor a lot of people by finally letting their voices be heard, you're going to hear some of those this season. So just wanted to give everyone a fair warning. And by the way, I mentioned that old land owner in Sulphur, Oklahoma, JD Anderson had even more guardians that were my family members that he had taken under his guardianship that I haven't even mentioned yet. Wow. You're right. I mean, how else was he supposed to run that big cattle ranch? He needed all the help he could get, right? Free help so. in their yeah. land. And these individuals may be long gone now, but they do have a story to tell. And it's one that'll both hurt and yet melt your heart. And there's a lot of courage and strength and resilience in those people. So don't mourn for them for too long, but not to mention there's a connection into another few stories that will have you on the edge of your seats. Believe it or not, there's even more interesting things happening in 1896. So when we start back up on this um, next season, uh, we're going to start with the year 1896 again. There's more, <laughs> the year to forget, you know, yeah. will it be turned into a year to remember who we shall see. The year that <laughs> keeps coming back to haunt us. <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't you know, I can imagine them sitting around his family going, can you believe this year? Yeah. <laughs> Everything that happened. Yep. Yeah. And you and I know what that's like even now. So. I know we would have stories for them. <laughs> So listeners, thank you so much for listening to my story and my ancestor's story, and even to learn a little bit about B and the good work that she does in this podcast. If it were not for her, I would not be up and running. I would not be talking to you right now. So B and these stories, they're all precious to me. And I can't wait to keep hearing yours, my dear listeners, please keep writing in. I'm, I love, love, love the history that you've been sharing with me about your ancestors too. Well, it looks like we made it through this episode. Only a couple of tissues destroyed. And my, you know, entire two Dr. Peppers are completely gone. We've got to stock up for the next one, as you said. <laughs> Costco run. <laughs> yep, definitely. <laughs> well, it sounds like we've got some exciting things coming this season. And I'm not going to give any spoilers. So please stay tuned. Yakuki, y'all. Well, bye, y'all. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma, to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success, because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.